Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, I saw some new faces and met some new people walking in. Uh, welcome. We're really glad that you are here. If I didn't get to meet you, I would love to do so on the way out. I'll be at the back right after the service, so just stop by and say hello. If you're not new, welcome back. Uh, we're going to get back into the series, Broken People, Big God. Before we do that, uh, I want to just address our, our fathers and really all of our, our men today. Hopefully you received a, a little moleskin journal when you walked in, again, whether you're a father or not, uh, we just wanted to give that as a gift to you. And our hope is, is that you wouldn't use it to scribble down stats of the latest sports event, but that instead you would use it to take notes today uh, from God's word, that you would stick it in your pocket. It's small enough to do that, that you would carry it with you, that we would, as fathers, would start today uh, carrying that with us, jotting down prayers that we have for our family, prayer that, prayers that we have for our spouses to know God more and to grow up and to be more like him. And so enjoy that. If you didn't get one, we have plenty. They're back at the connect desk right through those double doors to the inside. And, and I just want to address you for a second and just pray for you. Uh, um, Kind of a, a hero of mine that's a, a pastor and graduated from the same seminary I went to, and all those things says this, and I just think it really captures well the role of a man, and specifically a father. It says this. It says, as goes the man, so goes the family. If you want to change the family, change the man. As goes the man, so goes the family. If you want to change the family, change the man. And then you have a significant role. Those of you that are fathers now, you have a significant role in your family. God has called you there. He's wired you for this. He's placed you there. Maybe you roll in this morning and maybe you're tired. Maybe you're already feeling the guilt because it's Father's Day and you're like, well, I'm not the father I'm supposed to be. And you have all those feelings to navigate. You need to know that God has equipped you. He's empowered you for this. And that he has placed you and your family to bring about change and to cultivate a redemptive plan in and through your family. That God's placed you there, yes, you, to do that. And so my prayer for our men at, at PBC is that we would see that, that we would see a, a group of men band together to see legacies changed in and through us. And that would, that would start with us. We wouldn't wait for our wife to start that. We wouldn't wait for some other man to start it, that you and I, that we would lead the way in that, and that we would start that this morning. I can tell you I'm a father of three, and nothing has brought me such happiness, but also such humility as being a dad, especially as my kids get older. I see the things I do that I don't like. I see the things that they begin to repeat and say that I don't like, and, and, I, and I go to God and just in humility and say, God, I don't have this together, and you need to know as your pastor, I'm not doing this perfectly, uh, but I'm trying to, to follow Jesus in the midst of being a father, and I want you to begin to take that trek with me, and let's band together to do that. And so I want to do something just real quick before we get into the sermon. I'm going to ask all of our men, if you would, just stand with me. All of our men, would you just stand right where you are? Whether you're a father or not, just across this room, would you stand? And I'm going to ask you just to prayerfully listen. I'm going to read something over you. You can bow your head, close your eyes. Wives and, and other people that are sitting around, would you just prayerfully listen as well? If it's, uh, if it's your husband standing next to you, would you pray intentionally for them? If it's not your husband, would you just pray for our men as I read this, as I pray this over them? Let's do that now. Psalm 128, it says this. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Father, in the name of Jesus, we, we come before you today as a father and surrounded by fathers and surrounded by men and women who need you desperately. God, I pray your blessing upon them. And God, I pray that despite what our culture says, despite what our flesh says, that our, our blessing from you it doesn't come from the approval of man, but it comes from the fear of God. 
And God, that you would begin to cultivate a healthy fear of how big you are, how sovereign you are, but how you're also the servant of all. That God, you are the perfect example of a father. And that we would have a healthy fear outlook of you. We would cry out for you in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our strength. We would cry out for you as the the ultimate father, as the ultimate example, and that you would equip us and equip these men standing before uh, you today. God, as we stand before you symbolically today, we ask for legacies, as this text says, that we might be able to see our children and our children's children have peace because they know their heavenly father. God, there are many things working against that. So I pray that you would move in a mighty way in our hearts, in our minds this morning. God, I do pray for the people in this room, men and women, who didn't have a father, who maybe had a father but they were lacking, who maybe had a father, uh, a distorted version of a father. God, I pray that they would take peace this morning in you as their ultimate heavenly father who is good, who is sovereign, who is watching over them today, who sent his son to redeem them, and restore them to yourself. God, we, we lift up our men. We lift up our time together this morning. And we do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, as we continue the series, as we get back into it, Broken People, Big God, uh, we've looked at, we're looking at four people in the Bible who did, God used in significant ways. Uh, they did sometimes miraculous things, but we, we see as we read about them that they're ultimately broken people, but they serve a, a big God. So the first week we saw that in Abraham. Last week we saw it in Samson. Today we're looking at the life of Elijah. And remember our goal, we said this last week, our goal is not to elevate these guys as legends, which we sometimes do in the church. Our goal is also not to uh, bash them as lame, which we also can do. But our goal is simply to learn. It's to look at their lives and to learn, like, how did God use them? How are they flawed, but God is faithful? What does that look like, and how does that relate to us today? And so that's our goal with the story of Elijah. As we come to that story, it's in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings. You find First and Second Samuel right after that. You just flip to the right. That's 1 Kings. That's where we see the story of Elijah. And we got to step back just a little bit to see where we are in the overall story of God. And so here's where we are. The first week we did this series, we had Abraham, and in Abraham, you begin to see the nation of Israel formed, these people for God's own possession that would glorify him and follow him. And then you go on to see guys like Isaac and Jacob, and then you go on to see guys like Moses and Joshua, even if you didn't grow up in the church, maybe you've heard of these guys. And then in in the time of the judges, you have Samson, who we looked at last week, And then after that, you have kings like uh, King Saul and King David and King Solomon. And so we're after all of that in the book of 1 Kings, and we come to chapter 17, and we're introduced to two people, Elijah and King Ahab. First, we're going to hit Ahab and just give you some context for that. 1 Kings 16, you don't have to turn there now. You can go back and read it on your own. It's right at the end of 1 Kings 16. We get some information about King Ahab. We know that he worshiped the idol Baal. Uh, We're going to mention idols a lot today. Uh, Idols, if you're not familiar, are false gods in place of the one true God. You see this idol specifically in this text called Baal. You see him pop up at multiple places in the Old Testament. He was uh, multiple gods. He was the god of uh, thunder, uh, meaning they thought he controlled the weather, which we find out later that doesn't work so well. Uh, He was the god of fertility and sexuality and other things. And so this is who Ahab, the king at this time of the nation of Israel, is worshiping. And so the nation of Israel, founded with Abraham, who followed God, is now in the hands of a king and has been in the hands of multiple kings who are worshiping idols. And we read a little bit more about Ahab specifically. He doesn't just worship uh, Baal. He erects an altar to Baal. He is married to a woman named Jezebel who is incredibly evil, who perpetuates much of the idol worship that we're going to read about in the nation of Israel, who later hunts down Elijah to try to kill him. And so the nation of Israel is under incredible evil right now, but not only evil, but idolatry. And you got to remember, this is a different time, right? We have separation of church and state in our country today. They didn't have that. Church and state are very much together. So whoever the king is, whoever he worships, That goes for the whole nation. 
They begin to promote that and push that. And so you have a, a whole nation at stake here who's under this rule of King Ahab, who's an idolater, who's building altars so other people can be idolaters. And that's what Elijah walks into. And chapter 16 specifically says that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It says he did more to provoke God to anger than all of the kings of Israel before him. And listen, if you go back and read it, I would encourage you to read 1 Kings. It is a, it's an eventful book. There is king after king who rules unjustly, who begins to be drawn away to other gods, who maybe dabbles in worship of the true God but goes quickly to idols, and, he perpetu- and they perpetuate that over and over and over in the book of 1 Kings. And what we read at the, begin, at the end of chapter 16 is that Ahab was the worst of them all, that Israel hasn't seen a king so evil. And so that's who Ahab is. That's who we're dealing with. That's when Elijah shows up. Look at verse 1. Elijah shows up and predicts a drought, right? So welcome, Elijah. We don't really have much before this of Elijah. We don't have much background on his life. We know he shows up in this moment, and he proclaims a drought to this evil king. We do know a few things about Elijah. We know that his name literally means in Hebrew, the Lord is God. And we go on to see that. He's a follower of God. Not only is he a follower of God, he's a prophet of God. If you're not familiar, a prophet, specifically in the Old Testament, is someone who spoke for God. And so that's Elijah. He's a follower of God, a prophet speaking for God. And he shows up, and the first thing he does is predict a drought. But if you read the whole story of Elijah, which you can, you can go on to do that later today. We're just going to do a flyover. But if you read the whole story, it goes into 2 Kings. The beginning of 2 Kings, what you see with Elijah, he's carried up in a chariot of fire to heaven. So he doesn't die. He's carried up before death to heaven. He's the only person in the Bible who's like that. He goes on to do miraculous things. We're going to uh, just mention it briefly, but he meets a widow. The widow's son dies, and Elijah raises him back to life. We're going to read about extensively in a moment uh, a huge miracle that we see where God brings down fire. And it could be easy, and, and some people have thought this throughout history, that maybe Elijah was like an angel, that maybe he's like a mythical character. And so maybe you're thinking about Abraham and, and Samson. We saw a lot of flaws in their life. Do you remember that? Elijah, he just seems like the hero we always wanted, right? He, he's not the broken people. But as you get into more of Elijah's life, you see that after he does all these great feats, that at one point he's running in the middle of a desert, that he's struggling with his purpose, that he's doubting why he's here, that he says multiple times, I'm the only one left, I'm the only one left. You see a loneliness in Elijah. In fact, some, some people look at the life of Elijah and the story of Elijah, specifically in chapter 19, and talk about it as an example of how to deal with depression. Because he was so low and he was so down at one point. And so James 5, New Testament, right? James 5, later in the New Testament, helps us with this. James says specifically in chapter 5, verse 17, he points out that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And so James is calling people to pray in the book of James. And he references Elijah, who prayed, and a lot of crazy things happened. But he's saying, I want you to know, even though he was a prophet of God, even though you've heard all these miraculous feats that he accomplished, he was just a man with a nature like ours. And so the same principle of this whole series applies to Elijah. He's broken, but God is big. And God uses him in significant ways, and he can use us as well. And he shows up on the scene. He predicts this drought. Look back at verse 1. We see it clearly. He says, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then in verse 2, God tells him to go. So he shows up, predicts this drought, and then God says, depart. And he tells him to go hide by a brook. So a stream of, of water by a river. So Elijah bursts on the scene, predicts a drought, and then he leaves, right? It's interesting the way God has that planned out. But what we see in chapter 17, 1 through 7, is that God provides for Elijah. He sends him to this brook, so this drought has begun. He sends him to a brook, so he knows he's going to get water. He says he's going to send the ravens, the birds, to bring him bread and to bring him food, so he'll have nourishment. And what you see in 1 through 7 is Elijah does that for a time, and God provides. 
but then he calls him to go somewhere else. But before we move toward and forward in the, in the story, I want you to see this, and I think it's pretty simple, but we may miss it if we're not careful. Verse 5, look at verse 5. God's called Elijah to go to this brook. He's going to be provided for. After he's announced this drought to this evil king who probably didn't like it too much, I would have been questioning, like, God, is, are you sure? Is this really what you want me to do as your prophet? But look at how Elijah responds. Verse 5, it says, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Over and over, what you see in the life of Elijah is, so he went. You see that in this verse. You see later, just a few verses later, God calls him to go to this widow, and it says, so he arose. At the beginning of chapter 18, God calls him to confront Ahab again, and it says, so Elijah went. Listen, don't miss this. Elijah perseveres amidst difficulty through obedience. That over and over and again, you see difficulty, you see victory, and over and over again, you see those specific phrases, so he went. So he arose, and he, he listens to God, he talks to God, and then courageously he obeys. And listen, as we think about Father's Day, and a lot of us consider what courage is, a lot of us men, we think about that, like, am I courageous? What's the courageous thing to do? Our culture tells us what's courageous, like, don't feel emotions. Like, whatever you do, don't be vulnerable. Like, as men, you should be working 60 to, eight hour, 60 to 80 hours a week, that that's courageous, and we get all these pictures and movies in our culture from our friends and from our flesh of what is courageous. And men, you need to listen to what Elijah does. He obeys. That over and over and again, the pattern you see in the life of Elijah is he prays and then he obeys. He does what God calls him to do. And listen, I know in the midst of family in the midst of career, in the midst of finances, especially in the midst of difficulty, for a lot of us as men and women, it's easy to strategize, right? It's easy to draw up the plan on the whiteboard, consider the pros and cons, to try to solve everything. And if we can't fix it, we just don't do anything. Or we just go the other way because it's too hard. You need to know the most courageous thing you can do in those moments is obey. And some of you are thinking, well, Tim, if I knew what to obey, I would do it. Right, if God would just tell me what job to take and tell me the decision to make and tell me how to talk to that person and tell me how to lead my wife, I would do it. And you need to know, even if he doesn't tell you what to do, he tells you how to do it. That we have 66 books, 40 plus authors written over 1,500 years that tells you how to live your life as a man, as a, as a woman. That that's God's revealed will to you. In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of victory, you can obey. That's the most courageous thing you could ever do. If you begin to obey, if we all begin to obey, imagine what God would do with our families. If we just obeyed what we knew. Because if I had to guess, and if I look at my life, we're not always doing that, right? We're trying to solve some other things and fix the world's problems and, and uh, make an impact and a legacy so that people will never forget us. And God is simply calling you to obey and that all of us can take steps today to do that, to build into a legacy that glorifies God and brings others joy. And that's what you see in the life of Elijah as he, he gets up, he goes, he obeys. At the beginning of chapter 18, we're going to fast forward here. Remember we said last week when you're reading a book for school or for a deadline, and maybe some of you have done this, you're reading this book, and maybe you enjoy it, maybe you don't. And you come up to the deadline, the book is due tomorrow, you're supposed to have it all read, and you're on like chapter 12 out of 20. And so what do you do? You, you flip over to chapter 20, right? None of you do that, I know, but I, hypothetically, right? People do that. They flip to the end. And so for time's sake, we get, because we don't have time to hit every part of Elijah's story, we're going to fast forward to chapter 18. And so what's happened is, is several things. Elijah goes to this widow. He helps provide for this widow in miraculous ways. God does that through him. And then the widow's son uh, dies. Elijah helps raise him back to life. And then in chapter 18, he shows back up on the scene, and we find out it's been Three years of drought. So remember, at the beginning of chapter 17, Elijah predicts this drought. As we show up in chapter 18, it's been three years of that. And God shows up and tells Elijah, go confront Ahab again. Specifically, his idol worship 
and that once you do that, I'm going to bring rain. And that's where we come to in 1 Kings 18, verse 20. You can look along with us. You can follow along on the screen. This is what it says. 1 Kings 18, verse 20, it says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Uh, so verse 19, right before this, tells us that there are 400 prophets of one God and there are 450 prophets of another God. And so in this, we see that he invites all of them to come before him. And so we think, scholars think, there was 850 prophets of false gods standing before Elijah. A little bit later, he references only 450, and so we wonder, like, did some of them not make it? What happened? So it's either 850 or it's 450, but there's a lot of prophets of idols. That's the point. And so verse 21, this is what he says before these prophets. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Verse 22 it says, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are men. Means there are a lot of them. So let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And then it says, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. And so you got to picture this scene. You have Elijah, one representative of the true God before all of these other prophets of another false God, and he's calling them to the carpet in their beliefs and saying, hey, listen, we're going to prove once and for all whose God is real. And you got to understand the scenario here. It's been three years of a drought. It's been multiple years of, of idol worship. It's been a nation who has come together, king and queen, and all of these prophets, 850 of them, who are perpetuating this worship of idols. There's being altars built up in the nation of Israel where you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua. In the nation of Israel, it's been overtaken by this idol worship. And so that's the scene that we have in this passage. And what we see in verse 21 is Elijah calls out the prophet's duplicity. He calls out their duplicity. He, he acknowledges that some of them, they do worship God when it suits them. And then they worship Baal when it suits them. And they, they dabble in and out, and he gives us this imagery of limping. And I love that imagery because can't you just picture that? Like they're not running straight ahead. They're not walking in a specific direction. No, instead they are, they're limping. I'll just go over here and serve this God when it suits me. And then other times when it suits me, I'll just, I'll just kind of limp over here. And they're, they're riding this line, and they're limping in and out between the true God and, and the idols. And Elijah's saying, it doesn't work that way. You have to commit to one or the other. And sometimes when we see idolatry in the Bible, we, we think of statues and we think of metal um, things that were made, and, and those were the, the case in that time. And we tend to look at that, and even in this case, we can think like the nation of Israel, if they just look back on what God had done, he had developed them as a nation. He had rescued them through, Mo through Moses. He has done miraculous thing after miraculous thing. He rescues them all the time. How could these people not look back and see the one true God and worship him? How could they then make these little statues and worship them? Like, how is that even possible? And we think, how silly of the Israelites, how foolish of them. How could they ever do that? But listen, you and I do the same thing today. It may not be a statue, but we have idol worship in our hearts. John Calvin, an old theologian, said this, that our hearts are idol factories, meaning that we will find something to try to worship other than God. And so maybe it's not a statue, but maybe it's money. I mean, you just think about money, and, and maybe you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't worship money. I don't praise at the altar of money. But right as you look at your life, as you look at your time, talent, and treasure, what does that look like? With money, like all of you have been in these situations where you think, if I could just get that raise, then we could go on that vacation and it would all be bliss, right? 
And then you get that raise, and you go on that vacation, or you spend it somewhere else, and you think, where did that money go? Like, should we check the paycheck and make sure it's coming through? Like, I thought this was going to be so great. Like, it's never enough, is it? I mean, as you look back on your life, have you ever had enough money where you just said, it's enough? (laughs) I'm good, right? My wallet's full. My bank account's full. Our kids have what they need. We got the 401k. We got the 403b. We got the educational savings account. We got the lake house in Prescott. We got, you know, I don't even know if there's a lake in Prescott, but (laughs) you get the picture, right? We, We have everything we need. Have you ever been in that situation? No. Because listen, it's never enough. Because money, when worshiped, promises something that it can never provide. Security, power, status. Like when we work those 60-hour, 80-hour weeks, when we do everything we can, we sacrifice our family to get that promotion, when we exalt money and we're envy of others who have it, what we are doing is putting money up on a pedestal where God should be. And we're saying, if I could just get this money, then I would be provided for. And listen, some of those desires are healthy. Like some of you want to provide for your kids. I want my kids to go to a good college, like preferably on an uh, athletic scholarship. But if I have to pay for it, like, I want them to, to go to a good college. I want good things for my kid. I know money helps that. And so money's not bad. But when we make it ultimate, then it becomes a God. And it promises what it never provides. And all of us have experienced that at some time or another. And so maybe for you, it's, it's not money, but maybe it's approval. Maybe it's sex. And maybe you search out every pleasure physically thinking, if I could just get this, then I would be satisfied. And you need to know what an idol is ultimately, what it was in this day, what it is in our day, whatever it is for you. It is something who promises what only God can provide. It is something that sells you, but it never satisfies. That that's an idol, and that's an idol in our day, and our hearts can be prone to idol worship, and we can, just like these guys. We can dabble in and out. We can limp in and out. We can say, God, I worship you on Sunday, and you're so great, and you're so mighty. And then during the week, we can functionally, we can worship idols. And what you see over and over from God, and what we're going to see in this text, is that God wants all of you. God wants all of you. He he doesn't want you to limp around. He wants you to full-on run after him. He wants your whole worship, your whole life, your whole adoration. He wants all of you. And so Elijah, in this moment, he's not just talking to them. He's talking to us. He's saying, we want all of you. God wants all of you. You look at the first commandment, the Ten Commandments. It says, there shall be no other gods before me. God says that. You look at Jesus. People approach him and say, what's the most important commandment? What does he say? He says, love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. That throughout scripture, we see that God is a a jealous God, meaning he wants all of you. He will not share you with another. And the more we try to do that, the more miserable we are because it never satisfies. That as we think about the gospel, I know we're in the Old Testament. We have the the beauty of knowing the whole of scripture. And we, we know that God sends Jesus, the Father sends Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins to restore us to God to save us, to rescue us from our idol worship, to restore us so we worship the one true God. And what we see in the life of Jesus, it's amazing, is that even when we fail, he forgives. Whereas our idols, they always frustrate. If we fail our idols, if we don't get that money, if we don't get that approval, if we don't get that sex that we're after, what happens? We're frustrated. With Jesus, even when we fail, he already knows it, he's already died for it, and he forgives us that he is the only God that's worthy of our worship, of our adoration, of our time, of our talent, and our treasure. And Elijah's calling these people to that. He's calling us to that as well, that we can't limp. We have to focus and commit, and he's going to do so in extreme fashion. They're going to set up altars and pray for fire. Maybe you've heard about this story, maybe you saw it when you were little, uh, this huge display of, of Elijah trusting God and saying, hey, you pray to your God, 
I'm going to pray to my God. We'll see who brings the fire, and whoever does that is God. We see that play out in verse 25. Look at the verse. Verse 25, it says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So Elijah sees them crying out to this false god, and nothing is happening. And Elijah begins to give them a hard time, right? He says, maybe your false god is using the bathroom, right? Maybe he drank too much coffee this morning. Maybe he's busy. Maybe you should try more because nothing is happening. You see the confidence from Elijah in this moment. And then they cried out. Uh, so they continue to do this. Uh, they cry aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And notice the time here, verse 29. And as midday passed, remember they started in the morning. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering of the offering of oblation. That's the evening sacrifice. So they started in the morning, and now we're in the evening. And they're still ranting, they're still chanting, they're still doing all these things. But it says this, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And so you have these prophets, this mass amount of men, these prophets of this false god Baal, and they're chanting, and they're crying out, they're even cutting themselves for six plus hours to get their god to answer, to show up, but there's nothing. It says no one paid attention. Listen, as we talk about our idols, have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that as you've pursued things like money, like approval, like sex, like other things, that you, you don't get any answer in return, that no one pays attention specifically when things are difficult? Right? You can have all the money, you can have all the approval, you can have all the power in the world, but when things get hard, when you experience sickness, when you experience strife, when your life is plagued with sin that's breaking you to your core, in that moment, what does money do? When you've lost a loved one, what does power do in that point? You realize we're all powerless before God. That we all die. What do those gods return to you? How do they answer you when you sacrifice and you put the time in at work and, and you lay your family on the altar? How does that return to you long term? Listen, no one pays attention. That in the scheme of eternity, no one pays attention. And you see that with these guys as they cry out for their God to move. Why is that? Tim Keller, I alluded to it earlier, but he says this specifically, a pastor and author in New York, he says, Jesus is the only God, if you find him, he'll satisfy you. But if you fail him, he'll forgive you. Every other false God says, get me and I'll make you happy. Don't get me and you're gonna be miserable. We see that in a tangible way, they're cutting themselves. They're limping around all day, crying out to a false God that's never going to pay attention and never gonna return their sacrifice. But God does. We see that happen in verse 30. This is Elijah, so he's preparing his altar before God, and we, we see what happens here. Verse 30, it says this. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built this altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. 
water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, remember that's the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their knees or fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So there's a huge amount of text there. There's a lot going on there. We're just going to try to encapsulate it pretty quickly here. What we see and what I want you to see as we look at this passage is boldness and belief. First, you see boldness. You see Elijah asked for four jars of water to be poured on this altar. Remember, they're in a drought for three and a half years. When you're in a drought, you don't typically pour water on things, right? You save it. You use it for crops. You use it for drinking. But Elijah says, no, we're going to pour it on this altar. And he doesn't just do it once. He does it three times. He says, get it again and pour it on the altar. And I don't know about you, but as I try to imagine this scene, I just think about some of these people who are in the midst of drought, who are in the midst of conserving water for their family, for themselves, not knowing when the drought is going to end. It's been three and a half years, and Elijah and all of his bravado and all of his boldness is calling for four jars of water three times to be poured on an altar that we want fire to light up. (laughs) I would be doubting whether Elijah was sane or not. I would be at the very least suggesting to Elijah, hey, Elijah, I don't know, why don't we take these four jars of water and like while God dominates here in a second, why don't we take them and toast one another and drink them? Like at least let them not go to waste, right? We don't have to pour them on the altar. Let's not get excessive, Elijah. We don't have to build a river around the altar. Like let's not get crazy. Let's drink the water at the very least or not put it on because fire and water don't mix too well. But Elijah has this boldness. And again, it comes from God. He's been walking with God for over three and a half years, praying to God, obeying God, seeing God show up in the midst of difficulty. And at this point, he's bold. But he also has belief. Notice he prays out loud. He makes it very clear who he's praying to. He says, oh God of Abraham, Isaac, of Israel. He is identifying a very different God than they have. He's saying, I believe in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's who I'm calling out to. He makes, no, uh, makes, he makes the distinction, rather, uh, completely by calling out to God, specifically the one true God, Yahweh, and he shows his belief. So he shows his boldness, and he shows his belief, and God responds. And he doesn't just give a f- small flame. No, he leaves no room for doubt. It it says that it engulfs the whole altar, that even the stones, I don't know if you know this, but stones don't typically burn, but it engulfs them as well, that it licks up the water even in the trench around the altar, that God answers Elijah and he brings this fire. In the midst of his boldness, in the midst of his belief, God responds in a really powerful way, and it says the people observing, so not the prophets, but the people observing say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They say it twice. And some of us read that. Maybe you know this story and you think, man, if if God would just show up and bring fire today, it would make it so much easier. Like my brother who refuses to believe in God. Like my neighbor who always debates with me or my coworker. I mean, I pray for them. I pray in boldness. I pray and believe. Like, God, if you would just bring some fire, if you would just bring a spark, Like, I won't put any water on it. Just bring it. Like, God, if you would just do that today, it would be so easy. Like, they would say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Maybe some of you think that about your spouse. You just think, man, they don't believe in God yet. Maybe you think that about your kids. They don't believe in God. And you think, God, if you would just bring fire like you did then, maybe they would believe. 
Listen, I think, I think it'd be awesome if right before you today, I was able to say, God, bring your fire down, and there was a little flame on this pulpit. Like, that would be amazing, right? Like, that would prove, like, God has sent me to be your pastor <laughs> at the very least. That would prove that God's at work, and I could connect and tie in this passage with today. We serve the same God. I mean, that would be perfect, right? God, if you want to do that, go ahead. But God chooses to bring fire then. He chooses to work in other ways now. Could he bring fire? Yes. If he wanted to, he could. But God works in so many other ways. Listen, one of the ways is the Bible, that we have this whole account that you and I get to read today, that we get to look back at a time where he did bring fire, where he did prove himself to be God. Listen, at this time, Elijah didn't have this whole book. He didn't know what was going to happen. He was following God purely out of faith of what he had seen and heard. We have this whole book. We have this whole testimony of God doing miraculous feet after miraculous feet that culminates in sending Jesus Christ to rescue us and redeem us from all of our sin and restore us to himself. That we have that. And listen, we have other things as well today. We have birth. Some, a few of you have little bitty babies. We have birth. And I know it happens all the time, and everybody does it, so we just kind of get used to it, right? But have you ever stopped to think about, like, I was talking to my wife about this. Like, we have three, and I think we're going to call it after that, um, unless God does a miracle. But, um, but we think about our kids, and we were just looking at them the other day in the car, and I was just thinking, like, isn't it crazy? Like, you, like, like that, that's a human that grows inside of your belly, and it does that for a lot of women. Like, that's how we're all here. Like, how does that happen? Like, you're growing a human inside your belly, and then you birth it out. Right? This is the way it works, right? You tracking with me? Like, it feels like, if we weren't so used to it, it feels like an alien movie. I mean, it seems so crazy that this is what God does, and it's a miracle. And listen, specifically, some of you have been told you, have, you weren't able to have kids. There's been at least three instances in our church we prayed for people to have a child that wanted a child so desperately, but we're told medically it's not possible. And now, on a Sunday, you'll hear those babies crying. That God still moves in miraculous ways through birth, through other things. God's moved in your life by rescuing you in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your idolatry. He has you here today. You're at church today on Father's Day. You could be a lot of other places. This is a testimony that God has rescued you. He's done the miraculous work of turning you away from your sin and turning you to himself. So God still moves that we have, that brother you're praying for, that spouse you're pleading with to know Jesus, that neighbor that you're debating with. God, why won't you just move? He's moving. He has moved in and through your life. And we can point to this whole book. We can point to our lives that God is powerful that we might see other people say, he is the Lord God. He is the Lord God. So if we wanted to, we could end it right there, right? That would be a really good end to the story. Verse 39, it's this huge display of God's power and rescue through Elijah. But there's another verse, verse 40, and maybe you noticed it earlier. It says, seize the prophets of Baal, says Elijah. Let none of them escape and they seize them, they bring them down to a brook, and it says they slaughtered them there. Now, I'll be honest. I looked at this text, and I wrestled with this a lot, and I thought, you know, it's Father's Day. <laughs> I mean, most churches give, like, a little bit of encouragement on Father's Day, and it, and it feels nice, and we all go out to eat lunch, and this is not going to be like that. I'm just letting you know on the front end. This is difficult. To be honest, I wrestled with this. I, I, I looked at uh, commentaries. Some of them addressed it, but honestly, some of them skipped this verse. Um, I looked at pastors, some of whom who are well-known, and I just thought, man, how did they handle this? Like, what can I learn from how they navigated this passage and how they ended this well? And some of them skipped this verse. Some of them literally stopped at verse 39. <laughs> or some of them went right to the next passage where God brings rain. And I just thought, we we can't do that. And listen, my commitment to you, and we've done this multiple times in the life of our church, we've gone through difficult passages that don't always make sense, and they don't always make us feel awesome. 
And they're not always absolutely clear, but my commitment to you as a pastor, the pastor of this church, is that we will unashamedly, unabashedly look at God's word. That we'll look at the verses that encourage us and that make us smile and that we put on coffee mugs and t-shirts. But we'll also look at the verses that cause us to get on our knees and ask for God's mercy. That we're going to look at them all, and we're going to do that today on Father's Day, okay? So here's some things that will give us some context. Uh, so we've had all this happen, uh, but, but Elijah still takes these prophets, and he, he slaughters them. We don't know. Again, we don't know how many it is. We know it's a lot. Uh, so why does that happen? Here's some context. Deuteronomy chapter 13. So earlier in your Old Testament, it says this about false prophets. It says, let us go after other, or a prophet who says, let us go after other gods. So that's what these guys have been doing in regard to Baal. These people that say, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Verse 5 says, but... That prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. It goes on to say that you need to purge that evil from your midst. And so this is part of the law of God that if you see other prophets who are prophesizing, prophesying false gods and proclaiming false gods, that what you need to do is kill them. It says purge the evil from your midst. And so we have to have some context because I know that's, that's scary to some of you, right? But what we see in this specific context in 1 Kings, remember, you have King Ahab. You have Queen Jezebel. Like these aren't just individuals in the nation who decide to go their own way. This is from the top down. This is structurally, as a nation, they are building this idolatry into the fabric of their nation. There's no separation between church and state. They are saying to be a, a citizen, to be an Israelite, we want you to worship Baal. That you have multitudes of prophets who are perpetuating this as well. They're building altars. They're taking a nation that followed God, and they're drawing them away. They're leading them away. They're enticing them that it is satanic, that they're opposing God directly to his face, that multitudes of people are doing this, that people at the top of the food chain are doing this, and that that has been going on for years. It's not a moment of indecision. It's not a moment of rebellion. This is a, uh, a plague in the nation of Israel that's been going on for years. Read the book of 1 Kings. It's been going on for years. Just in Elijah's life, it's been going on for three and a half years. And so when you think of what God does to bring judgment, you need to consider all of that. And then secondly, you need to consider that God is holy. We see oftentimes in the Bible that God is so holy, he's intrinsically perfect, that he cannot be in the midst of sin. Sometimes we don't understand God's judgment because we don't get his holiness. He is completely and utterly holy and perfect. And sometimes we see he can't even be in the midst of sin. The third thing we see is I just said that God is patient. You read 1 Kings. You read over and over kings leading people astray, ruling unjustly. As you read that, to be honest, you want to cry out for justice. God, how long are you going to let these guys rule and govern over people and lead them so unjustly? As we see that in our day, some of us want to cry out for justice. God, how long will you bring these evil terrorists, these evil rulers? God, how long are you going to let that happen? Why do bad things happen? And when we do that, we're crying out for justice and judgment. And that God is patient. That we see over and over and over again, not just in, book, in the book of 1 Kings, but in the Bible, God doesn't bring judgment, that he brings blessing, that he brings rescue. And listen, what we tend to do as skeptics and especially people outside of our faith and atheists who push this and teach this and write books is we tend to focus only on judgment and never on blessing. But God doesn't allow us to do that. You know why? Because in the very next few verses, he brings blessing. 
So as he brings judgment, right away he brings blessing. And not just right away, overall in the full scope of the narrative of Scripture, we see him bring the ultimate blessing through Jesus Christ. To not condemn us, John 3, 17, he doesn't condemn us, but he rescues us. That's why Jesus came. It's to rescue sinners deserving of judgment that God in his holiness had every right to walk away from us, but instead he comes towards us in blessing and in rescue. He gives his life for you. We see that in the whole of scripture. We see that in the next passage as we close. Verse 41, look at that with me. It says, Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So notice, Elijah is victorious, right? He's defeated these prophets of Baal. And what does he do? Does he boast to King Ahab? No. Instead, he bows. It says, it gives us a vivid expression. It gives us a vivid picture of this, right? That you see Elijah with his knees bent, his face in between his knees. That he tells his servant to go seven times, go and see if there's rain. That he's trusting God that he would fulfill his promise and bring rain and end this drought. And God does. After three and a half years, God brings blessing. And so listen, as we wrestle with difficult judgment, we also have to praise God for his blessing. We see it in this passage. And, and as some of us try to think through this and process this, we would have just liked it to end at verse 39. I would have liked that as well. But I'm not God. And listen, any difficult text, this is going to help you as you read scripture, any difficult text that you see in scripture, any difficult thing that happens where you wonder like, God, that just seems, I just wrestle with that, it just seems off. Like when we do that, ultimately we are wanting to project our idea of God. And when we project our idea of God, whether it's end in verse 39, whether it's no bad things happen, whatever the case may be, we're projecting our idea of God. And when we do that, who is God? We are. That we decide what God does and what he doesn't do. That we put God in a box and we decide who is God. And listen, God is infinite, we are finite. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and we are limited. And so we, eventually, we, we trust him. So wrestle with this. Read about it. You're not just going to, if this is what you expect out of church, let me just tell you, you're not going to come for 40 minutes, probably 50 now, sorry. Um, you're not going to just come and get your dose and get your feel and consume and then leave and be cheered up every Sunday, Right? You gotta go and read it. This is God's word to man. We gotta read it and wrestle with it and pray through it and talk with others about it and go to a community group and take notes in your moleskin journal. Right? This is God's word. So go wrestle with it. Doubt some, but come back to God and his character and what you have seen over the whole of Scripture and how at some point you have to trust God is God or you are. There's no in between. You can't limp in between both. And so I would encourage you to go on that journey with us. Four things as we close. How do we live this out? How do we live out the story of Elijah in our own lives and see God's faithfulness to us? The first, first thing is we need to see a pattern of prayer. What you notice with Elijah is he wasn't just prayerful out loud on the big stage when the lights came on. Like, God, we're going to bring down fire, have this huge competition. Now I'm going to pray to you. No, he, he's been praying to God the whole time. There's a pattern built up in his life. And it's not ritualistic, it's relational. That Elijah over and over is walking with God and talking with God for three and a half years. And then he shows up with altars and brings down fire, right? 
There's a pattern of prayer. We need to have a pattern of prayer in our lives. And so, listen, men, why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? I mean, just think about this. I wrestle with this in my own life. When I think about praying with my spouse, why don't I do that? When I think about praying uh, in my car, why don't I do that? When I think about praying with my kids, why don't I do that? Why is there such a tug? Do you feel that tug? Because Satan doesn't want you to pray. Because your flesh doesn't want you to pray. Because when you pray, John Piper said this just recently, and I think it captures it well. When you pray, you see glory. And when you see Glory, you change. And when you change, you begin to live for Jesus. And when you begin to live for Jesus, you make an impact on your family and on the world around you. And it starts with prayer. And so we need to have a pattern of prayer in our lives. The, the other day, I was studying this passage, and I went to a coffee shop to do some work from there and to meet uh, with another pastor in our city. And he didn't show up. And I didn't bring my phone, I forgot it at home, and I didn't bring my charger for my computer. And so it felt like I had left without one of my kids, right? I'm just, have you ever felt that? I'm just like, I, what, what am I going to do? Coffee, I don't, you know, I'm clueless about how to operate now without my charger for my computer and my phone, right? And so in that moment, I just felt conviction of, Thinking about the life of Elijah, he's praying. He's praying to God, walking through immense difficulty over and over and over. He's praying for rain. He's praying for God to show up in a powerful way to defeat these idols. And in this moment, what am I doing? Why am I not excited? Wow, I get no distractions and I get to pray. Why is it my last resort, not my first instinct? Because we lose sight of this grand story of God. He's building through you. I said it at the beginning, men, this is true for you as women. God has placed you, he's called you, he's wired you to follow him and to help others do the same. God's placed you for that. You're in the midst of a battle. Now, maybe we're not praying and seeing who brings down fire. Maybe it's not that vivid, but there is a battle. There's a battle going on for people's lives for eternity. And at a coffee shop, at your job, in your neighborhood, you get to be a part of that. And that should drive us to pray. That should drive us to get on our knees and pray, to stand up and pray, to pray out loud when we're in the car and people will think we're weird. That should cause us to have a pattern of prayer. And so first thing, have a pattern of prayer. You can start today. That those doubts in the name of Jesus should go away. And that when you think about praying with your spouse or your family or your friends, that you would just step out in faith and build that pattern of prayer. Would you do that today? The second thing we see is a patience of waiting. Elijah waited by a brook. He waited with a widow. He waited to see Ahab again. He waited through a three-year drought, and God built in him patience. Now, was God moving in the waiting? Yes. He was refining Elijah. He was forming Elijah so that in the midst of this big scene where this fire comes down, he could be ready for that. God's doing the same thing in your life. Some of you are waiting. You're waiting on a job. You're waiting on what your career will look like. You're waiting on children. What's God doing in all of that? He's teaching you patience. He's teaching you to trust him. He's refining you for something else that's going to come. Do you ask him that? Are you so frustrated with the waiting that you forget and you miss the moment to ask him, God, what are you teaching me? How are you trying to refine me? Would you take that step today? The third thing we see is a perseverance of obedience. We said it multiple times, but Elijah prays, he obeys, he gets up, he responds to God's revealed will in our lives. The last thing we see is a power of trusting. Some of us see all of this today. We see it and we're discouraged. We think, ah, I can never be like Elijah. I mean, I look at my life. I mean, Tim, you don't know the things I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. I mean, I can never take these steps as a father, as a mother, as a person in this church. I can never take these steps like Elijah. I can never have this pattern of prayer. I'm just going to fail. What's the point? Maybe if you're having those thoughts right now, you need to remember James 5, that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, that Elijah was just a man. He was trusting in a big God. He was ordinary. God is extraordinary. You serve the same God, and I do too. And it's our trust in him. As we take these next steps, as you do that, that he changes us and he changes those around us.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you uh, give us the opportunity every Sunday to dig into it. And God, I pray that we would do that. We would dig into it. We wouldn't just listen to it and have some nice thoughts and walk away, God, but we would press into your word. And that, God, by your spirit, through your word, you would teach us, you would shape us, and you would mold us. That we could be examples, like Elijah, of people who trust a big God. God, we celebrate fathers today, and, and I do as well. We celebrate these men that are in this room. I know that there's uh, people in here, men or women, who um, have times of doubt, who have times of discouragement, who have times of frustration. God, I pray that in this moment... You, our perfect heavenly Father, would equip and empower the men and women in this room to have a pattern of prayer, to obey and perseverance, to trust you, to wait on you. God, give us that kind of courage in the name of Jesus by your spirit. Give us that kind of courage to do that today, to follow you, our ultimate heavenly Father who is good, who is sovereign who is patient with us. God, help us to see you that way. Help us to follow you that way. Help us to praise you that way, even now, as we sing. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen.